1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: Well, welcome to another Word in Your Ear and let the record reflect that Paul Weller has been writing songs now for my god doesn't it make you feel old for 50 years. <laughs> it's, unbelievable. it's unbelievable. And he's just published a uh, 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 100 of his lyrics in this fantastic, gorgeous and uh, picture-packed uh, publication Paul Weller Magic the Journal of Song and he's been interviewed about each one and talked about the songwriting process. And what he remembers about it, writing it by long-time admirer and old pal of the podcast Dylan Jones. Dylan, it's lovely to see you.
1: Lovely to see you too. Very nice yeah. to be here. Thank, thank you for inviting me.
0: Not at all. So, look. Firstly, you make it very clear early on that you were a major, major follower. You go back a long way with Weller. You you uh, saw him how many times? How many, how many times did you see the Jam? Was it eight? I can't remember.
1: Uh, it was. I think it was slightly more than that. It was. Um, I used, to, I used to do the pub rock circuit and um, the Nags Head and the Red Cow and places like that, and yeah. the jam were one of the first punk groups to, uh, to, to bas- basically get on the circuit. So not, not only did I see them a hell of a lot, but I also saw a terrible group called The New Hearts, who eventually turned into Secret Affair, who seemed to support oh, the jam yeah. everywhere. Ian oh, really? Page. Yes, of course. Well, I remember him very well. So you were
0: being a bit te- mean, know, a teenager, weren't you? What, what, why did you connect so strongly with the jam?
1: Um, I don't know. I suppose I was at that age, 16, 17. Uh, and it was an incredibly exciting um, period of my life and many other people's life. But they And they also worked fantastically well in small venues, like like a lot of those groups did at the time. Yeah. I was less keen on them when they got bigger and started playing um, places like uh, uh, Hammersmith Odeon and Wembley Arena and places like that because it became too sort of commodified, too gang-orientated. But in those small venues, they were amazing.
0: So, so how did you, you come to write a book like this? I mean, does this start with the publisher or with Paul Weller or, or what? I mean, because it's slightly unusual, isn't it, because it's a book of lyrics. How does well, you,
1: that work? You're probably sick of hearing... Um, this but it's one of those projects that started in lockdown All right. and yeah. um <laughs> uh, i had a call from uh, um, um, paul's management one day and said would you have any interest in in doing some podcasts um which obviously a because um that would uh, be enormous fun and and b would it, and it, it would get me out of the house so um <laughs> how, and we did these podcasts, uh, and uh, I found them enjoyable, and I, I think Paul found them enjoyable enough to do some more of them. And then a few months later, um, I was down at the studio in uh, near Woking, and the idea of this book um, was suggested. And, and he had done a couple of picture books with this publisher before, um, but he was interested in doing a book about... Um, his songwriting, principally his lyric writing, and wanted to someone to uh, ask him questions, listen to him, and formulate it. And that's how the idea started. So it was very simple, really.
0: So did you help him choose the songs? Because there are, I think it's just over a hundred, isn't it? Did you? Was that selection part of yours? Did you <laughs>
1: suggest things? No, 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 no one suggests things to Paul. Um, do, do they not? That's interesting. <laughs> Surely. No, okay. Um, yeah, we we um, in all seriousness, I did because I said I think that your inclination would be to veer towards the esoteric uh, and things which were probably um, more contemporary. But I said if you're going to do something like this, you're only going to do it once. It's probably the closest you're ever going to get to doing an autobiography. So you need to talk, as well as those things, about the big songs, about those songs that meant an awful lot of people uh, um, who bought records by the Jam and the Style Council and, indeed, who who were there in the early part of his solo career. So I think it was very important that he addressed not just those songs, but also his frame of mind um, and what he was thinking when he was making those records. Do you know, you, Dylan, I can just Well, I've heard
0: you say that. I can just imagine you saying that. I really can. Yeah. I can imagine everybody at the publisher and Paul Wells, the manager, just going, Dylan, just go in there and tell him, please. Yeah. You tell nice, him. In you the nicest we'll possible way. In, 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 a, in a slightly flattering way, in a nicest possible way, what he should do. And I, you did it absolutely perfectly. That Dylan. is perfect. That's really good. So do you think there's a bit early on when you talk about having the, the, the longevity and the, and the variety approaching now you know McCartney or a Bowie or, or Van Morrison, do you feel that he's, I'm guessing
1: not got the appreciation that he deserves as a songwriter? Well, that is not for me to say, but one thing I think is very important uh, and is something uh, is one of the reasons I really wanted to do this project is that if you listen to or if you subscribe. To the to Neil Tennant's idea that anyone in the entertainment industry, songwriter, musician, performer, what have you, particularly those that make records, probably has. I think it, he calls it the the imperial phase or the imperial yeah, yeah, period yeah. where yes, you he make knows. the best. Your your. In fact, I've heard you two talk about it yeah. in the past. Neil <laughs> really
0: invented that expression. Actually.
1: There is a there is a seven or eight year period where you make your best work. Um, and if you compare something that so and so records now, it's not going to be as good as the as the material that he produced in the late seventies, early seventies, or where, when, whenever that 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 imperial or purple period was. But I maintain, and I think there are um, quite a number of people who subscribe to this, that I think that in the fi- in the last five or six years, Paul has made records that are. Easily as good as anything that he has recorded in his past, and some might say better. And I think it. I wanted to acknowledge that because I think it's true, and so that's why in the book um, we talk about the Jam, the Star Council, the solo years, and what I call—I think I call it—the Purple Patch, or it's the it's those last five or six records, which are very. Very important in the in the narrative arc of what he's done as you said since the uh, since the mid 70s
0: do you think also that that there is, what goes along with that is um, is people's relationship with with kind of their their favorite rock names so they generally have a relationship that starts when they're 17 or whatever and then it kind of it fades a bit in the 30s or whatever 40s but then it comes back late in life, doesn't it? When you look around, you think they're still there. I'm still here. You know what I mean? And the bond becomes a lot stronger, doesn't it, later in life? Do you think? I mean, does that that seems to happen with, I don't know, Van Morrison or Paul Dillon or Paul McCarty, all kinds of people?
1: I think not only is that uh, um, true, completely true, precisely true, but I think that it's also something that the more self aware, um, rock star musician also appreciates, and consequently they start making records in an attempt to, to capture the excitement that um, that perhaps um, the consumer had in their sort of first flush of, of fandom. However, it usually doesn't work, and yeah. and and I think that where Paul has been smart is not smart, but I think that he's been lucky in some some respects is that he hasn't. There, there is no inclination to make records like he used to. Uh, and these are new records um, containing material that he perhaps wouldn't have recorded 50 years ago. I do think one thing, another thing that's interesting, is that I think for a lot of groups who, who were, um, came up in that first flush of, of punk, and, and also with Weller him, him himself, I think there was a reluctance to acknowledge the importance of melody. Uh, in in fact, on the odd occasion when Paul wrote a ballad back in the day, there was an air of embarrassment about it because <laughs> oh, they yes. were sort of too too tender. Uh, You're too talking plain, about English Rose, aren't you? Exactly. Yeah.
0: You don't English Rose is this incredibly sentimental song, and I think you say in the notes that he. he he didn't even want it on the album. He wanted it as a secret track or something. And he wouldn't have anybody in the studio when he was yes. recording it. So yes. He was embarrassed about it. There was an old-fashioned masculinity that was, it was kind of... Exactly. Countering. Well, I, I,
1: I think it was also um, framed by the sort of ethos of the time, which was youth, aggression, and, and, um, uh, and almost sort of, uh, um, uh, a refusal to acknowledge any sort of emotion below the surface. And I think that's changed now. And I think that you can listen to those those half a dozen records that he's made recently, and and um, be uh, blown away by the, by the use of melody, y- using melody in a way that that McCartney had throughout his career.
0: Well, he started off. Um, you were writing songs. And, and and being influenced by the Zombies, I think, and the Beatles and the Kings. But he, he wasn't taking on board any of the stuff he was listening to at the time, which was Slade and Bowie and everything. He was going back to those early songs. Why was that? Why was he not using any of that contemporary music in in the songs he was
1: writing? Well, if you talk to Paul, it's because his initiation into the world of music and pop culture, particularly British pop culture, was around the late 60s. I think he was quite an early adopter because he was yeah. such a huge, huge fan of the Beatles. And he became incredibly interested, some might say obsessed, with the whole mod ethic and uh, not only the type of music that was associated with mod culture, but also with 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 um, um, ideas of presentation in graphics and in, and in clothes uh, and in record design, and the way that that pop products were mediated to to the public, yeah. and that and, and that interest in mod culture has obviously stayed with him throughout his career.
0: Where do you where do you stand on the style council phase? Because you rather give the impression that they weren't taken very seriously. Because a lot of people just really missed the jam, and they thought it was a they thought it was a bit. Uh... Spivvy and superficial, or whatever. I mean, it's uh, yeah. The songs were just as political, weren't they? Walls come tumbling down, etc
1: i i i i love that i've never heard the the word spivvy used spivvy. <laughs> i'm so,
0: talking yeah. about blazers and espadrilles here <laughs> I, I thought it, i thought he was going to say feet and then it yeah. said spivvy <laughs> we're in the world of, we're in the world of dad's army though. we are yeah <laughs> i've
1: i've i've heard the word feet and i've i have heard that um the word blazer used as an aggressive tool in in the way yeah. that <laughs> the mark just used it but never yeah. spiv um <laughs> in, in, in 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 all seriousness the answer to your question i actually think the style council i'm not trying to be arch or perverse but i think style council were a much better group than the jam i think because really uh big be- well because um he had made the decision to be sort of willfully transgressive and to not subscribe to the orthodoxies of, of what his previous group had done i think that the um the, that determination to be varied and to use lots of different styles, which lots of critics found phony and sets, I think think contrib- contributed to, at least for the first four or five years, to a really interesting body of work. Right, right.
0: Were you at all involved with it? I mean, this is, a, you say you'd done some picture books with this publisher beforehand yeah. were you involved in the look of this at all i mean because that's clearly something you've got a lot of views on um
1: initially i mean i think that uh, i i um i said at the outset i said if you're going to do this you've got to make people understand what it is that it isn't just a collection of photographs and some sort of casual reminiscences because actually this was being done at the same time as mccartney was doing I'm his very say. Similar <laughs>
0: yeah work. yeah i'm sure and yeah. um
1: uh uh i think that i hope that the book does justice to 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 um the reason that he wanted to do it in the first place i mean there were some disappointments i mean one of my favorite weller songs is is a song called bullrush which um uh, came i think it was on the first album it was very early in his solo career in the early 90s and i was quite intrigued by this and, and we were in we were doing an interview while well, one one day, I think it's on film actually at the uh, at the studio in Woking, and I asked him about this song, and he looked at his shoes and looked up and said, "Just a song about bull rushes." I'm, I'm sorry, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's your lot.
0: <laughs> so, so you said at one point that you, you you thought he was embarrassed that having a a, a big vocabulary was somehow a, a, an implying a betrayal of his class. Yeah, is that right? I mean, I you know we both interviewed him, David and I. And we thought he was very eloquent, and he was always talking about the books he'd read. He was very kind of uh, lots of literary influences and stuff. But do you think he was just self conscious about being, you know, uh, I don't know, over self educated or, or what?
1: I think in the early days, yes, I do actually, yeah. and I think you're, you're right. He's incredibly eloquent. And um, when pressed and in the right mood, we'll talk about lots of those things. But, but I do think in the early days, there was, uh, there was a reluctance to acknowledge that. Also, I think that he wanted the music and the records to almost exist in, in a vacuum. He, yeah. I, I, don't, I, I don't think he liked the, the contextualization, didn't like the, uh, the explanations. And I think that, I mean, I interviewed, I interviewed him a lot um, back in the um, l- very late 70s and early 80s. Uh, and he was, he could be very unforthcoming. In, in fact, I did I did say to him at one, well, one, one point, you were a difficult bugger to talk to back in the day. Yeah, yeah. No. He, wasn't he, was remotely, uh, he wasn't remotely apologetic, which I, which I found quite engaging, actually. But yeah. also,
0: also, when you, were, you were interviewed him back in the day, I, I interviewed him a couple of times back in the day, and of course it was with the group. Yes. Yeah, so no. With the jam. which is always inhibiting. You, know, you yeah. never get the truth from anybody when, when you interview them with the band because they're all desperately trying to position themselves and maintain in, the in group of the strategy. Other two, yeah. Maintain the yeah, group strategy and they don't know what it is, really. They only work it out while doing the interview. You know, you, you're there to be part of the experiment, really. It's when you write it later that they go, oh, yes, yeah. that's what we are. And then they start performing it. It's a really exciting, I believe yes, that's true. true. You know? It is true. And uh, it's, it's interesting, sorry, to cut across here. You know, Paul Weller wanted to kind of not have his personality be part of it, and yet that is his biggest thing. He is just as much a hero to a load of people now as he was back then. Yeah, More than anybody else of his generation, far more than Johnny Rotten or, you know, the late Joe Strummer or whatever, you know. Weller is a hero to a load of people who took him on as their hero when they
1: were 14 years old, and they still feel like that now. I think that's true, and that's certainly, um, when, whenever I put anything on social media, the tsunami of stuff, of, of, um, uh, of responses that, that comes back, is immediate and vocal, and yes, uniformly, um, sort of uh, in that vein of hero. Works, yes. Which is amazing, but also I think also causes its problems. And so I think that the um, I think a a, a well um, documented part of his career is the fact that whenever he has by accident or design hit a a scale of fame which he feels uncomfortable with, he immediately recoils because it, he finds it to be quite an intrusive aspect to the job. Mm. Mm. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it
0: is. It's, looking at some of the lyrics on the page, <clears throat> you really get an idea of just how adventurous they were, actually. It really struck me that That's Entertainment was a really good example. The entire song written without a single rhyme in it, I think. You know, the yeah. first rhyme, is, rhyme I think it's siren, concrete, howling and blinking or whatever, you know. And it's it's. I suppose it was all done in a, in a mad, impetuous rush, you know, it's kind of sense impressions. But I thought that was pretty interesting. Where would he have... Uh, you know would he would he who who else would have influenced him that he
1: might have come up with an idea like that i think that's a it's a really interesting point and i think that uh one of the one of the original ideas for the book which was junked uh after a while was to include um some of paul's poetry because he's a, he's he's a he's a keen study of um poets and poetry uh and the ways in which they work um i think you can also tell that if you look at sound effects which i think is probably the best jam record and it was a deliberately constructed record not just in terms of its music which was more sort of pushing towards the gang of four type uh, world but also in the construction of the lyrics which are incredibly modernist um and you can tell that he'd taken particular instruction from some of the Liverpool poets. Um, yes, Adrian and, Henry, And, and, yeah. and um, a lot of the way that, that he had formulated his lyrics. So I agree with you. I, I think a lot of the way that he writes is, um, is, in some respects, incredibly complex, even when it's very simplistic.
0: I, 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 there are all sorts of little tiny details I found really fascinating. <laughs> There's one, you know, and he's clearly part of a of a songwriter in uh, English uh, suburban songwriting tradition, you know, which starts with, with the kinks and, and the squeeze and eventually the streets and uh, the pulp and the Arctic monkeys. But he's obsessed with this idea of being in the suburbs being, working, and wanting to be in London. And he comes up to London when he's a teenager, I think, and records traffic noise. Was that right? Yeah. And yeah, tell me true, about that. Why, why was he doing that? He'd come back with these tapes of just London traffic.
1: Well, I think it's it's it, and as you say, this this type of emotion and frustration has it, it affected and contributed to 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 the careers of, of of so many great pop stars. It's that thing of being slightly outside the city and being desperate for it, but yeah. but also being 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 tied not to the country but but to your home uh, and. Um, uh, in many respects, I've, even though I'm not an entertainer, I felt the same thing. If you li- live on the borders, you'd be living somewhere like High Wycombe. You're sort of, you're nearly there, but you're not there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so going up to town is incredibly intoxicating. And he took it to the, this ridiculous extreme of actually re- going to Oxford Circus, no less, and recording the traffic on a, on a little cassette.
0: Amazing. It's extraordinary. There must be traffic in Woking, surely. <laughs>
1: It's a different traffic. kind of
0: traffic, it's David. A different different <laughs> kind of traffic. What about, let's talk about this. This whole business of kind of being in between one thing or another—that um, you know—that that, that, his father was a self-employed builder, you know, regarded as what lower middle class or whatever you know, background. But you know, a lot of people in previous generations of entertainers came from that kind of background. And they kind of presented themselves as slightly posher than they were. Whereas Paul yeah. Weller didn't. He went the other way, if anything. You know, I always got I, a I, feeling I... when I met him that he always wanted to be regarded as being a bit rougher than he actually was.
1: Um I couldn't comment on that, but I think that certainly I think your observation is 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 uh is right in that I think that became a trope. And I mean, Bruce Springsteen did very similar thing. Absolutely, he? Yeah, you yeah. know, he was from somewhere that that uh, in New Jersey, which is it's almost New York, but it's not New York. Oh, it's certainly and, not New York. Yeah. Over- it's Essex, basically, is what it is. It's um, I think possibly there's um that adoption of an urban environment is something which is very popular uh, and and has always been. But even if you take his contemporaries like The Clash, there was such a sort of um, the idea of The Clash being a group about London. That was as manufactured as anything else during the punk times, wasn't it? And I think John John Savage said that the first Clash album is almost like a concept album about West London. And it's true. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I like the thing you were writing about his song titles. that He had this, this thing about you know, slightly tabloid-sounding song titles. You know, Life at a Top People's Health Farm, I Was a Dole Dad's Toy Boy, yeah. uh, The Story of Someone's Shoe. I mean, those, those are great titles. So is he one of those people, a little like Morrissey, where, where where once you've got the title and you've got people's attention, kind of a large amount of the, of the heavy lifting is done?
1: I think when he was working strictly in the pop arena... That was certainly true. And I think you can look at a lot of the song titles uh, during the period of the jam and say the same thing. And I think particularly you, you look at sound effects and think that that's a very modernist tabloid piece of work. Yeah. But I think recently that has not been the case. And I think that he has allowed his craft and his sort of artistic inclinations to define what he's done. And I think he's a lot less prescriptive now than he used to be
0: how many of how many hits did they used to have to write at uh, the height of the jam mean you know, it must have had a, a a rate of production pretty much like ray davis with the kinks in the 60s cuz they were a number one every few every couple of months weren't they or, or am i misremembering that Is
1: no that- i think you i i think you're right i think there there was um it was it was aping that sort of that uh, uh the manufacturing cycle of the mid 60s wasn't it, when you'd have four singles a year and yeah. one album, maybe two albums? Yeah, yeah. Um, although in the 60s, you might throw in the odd EP as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I never realised their career was hanging hang on a thread very early on. I think at one point at, at Polydor, I think you said, that they're, they're told they've got to cover a 10cc song. Was yeah. that right? Like, because what saved yeah. them from having to do that? They presumably had a hit with something else. I mean, the, that they
1: was the odd. Um, they had a particularly underperforming um second album the uh, the modern world album oh yeah which was which was rushed and had um some weak covers on it just and um um even had a bruce foxton song on it wasn't it wasn't very good yeah Uh, and then he had done some preliminary recording for all mod cons and a very astute record company executive basically said it's not good enough and um uh Told him to to go away and write some write some better material, which he did. And I think and, and he and and he acknowledges that that was the kick up the backside that he needed yeah. to get to a level where he could compete um, at 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 the level that he wanted to compete.
0: So you're talking about that later period, and you made the point that when he goes into his kind of solo career, that um, Steve Winwood. Becomes the kind of leitmotif, as you call it. So, yeah. in what way? So, he would Stephen. Did he consciously kind of use him as a kind of role model? And if so, in what way?
1: Uh, I think I think Paul would deny that, but I think he was um, certainly. If you listen to the, the the first couple of solo singles and and the first couple of albums, I think you can. The smell of traffic, a different kind of traffic. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. is is very very powerful and um yeah i think there was um there was a move towards um perhaps making music that sounded a little more like um traffic and stevie winwood and also an an, an adoption of a wider kind of mentality because i think that the even though the style council had been deliberately varied in its sort of in its uh, genre of of, of um, music, and also in terms of its presentation, I think the mere idea of being a pop group he found sultifying after a while, and indeed the records that they made towards the end of their career were not were not terrific
0: so you don't hold out any
1: hopes for a jam reunion. Why would anybody want one? I mean I personally, I hate reunions I see no point in them. Um, but no i i there there will never be a jam a jam reunion um and i think that I why are you think so of convinced it. of that um i i honestly don't think i mean paul has probably been asked that question more than any other other question he's been asked in his career and i don't think he's going to snap right
0: <laughs> no understood I must admit, I think it probably would be a mistake. I don't know. It'd be awful. It, yeah, would yeah. Be, it would
1: be awful. And even the people who are still rather desperately clamouring for it, I think, would be disappointed after about seven minutes. Yeah.
0: No, that's undoubtedly true, but it doesn't very often doesn't stop these things happening. Wouldn't does stop it? people going. going. It's yeah, the exactly. size of the cheque tends to be the thing
1: that decides it in the end. Uh, well, you can I, see, I think there is, there is a certain amount of inevitability of Oasis or the Smiths reforming at some point because oh, because eventually the check just gets too big uh, they, they, live nation uh, just put <laughs> it's like that old eddie murphy thing when he, he made a terrible film and, and someone uh, a critic said why did you make that terrible film i think it was called best defense and he said because three men came into a room carrying a check <laughs> this is uh, <laughs>
0: Absolutely, <laughs> uh,
1: okay. but I don't
0: think the Jam will ever reform. So, okay, but you think Oasis and the Smith? Oh, I, I, I definitely Oasis. Yes, but- bet my house on it. Bet yeah. my house. on it. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Fair well, enough. Oasis only needs two people to agree, really. And yeah, and they yeah, eventually okay. will. You know, the rest of it doesn't matter so much. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, so exactly. Dylan, is this is this the end of your project started in lockdown? Are you finally ticked them all off? Are you yes. now on to you now on to <laughs> other things? What else are I've you left doing? Left the house.
1: I've officially (laughs) left the house, yeah. What else are you doing? You must be a further two books along. Um, I started a small film company. We're making documentaries, and I'm writing a musical with Jimmy Webb. Oh, my goodness, that's that's amazing.
0: amazing. Very
1: good. Wow. Are you you going to tell us anything more about that? Um, Well, the musical is is using Jimmy Webb's catalogue. We're also commissioning um, Jimmy to write two new songs, and the narrative arc of the show, the book is 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 broadly his his life, and um, we're, uh, we're just coming to the end of our, our, our first sort of writing um, session. In terms of we got um, the, uh, the 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 first version of the book is finished, the electronic deck is finished, and now we're we're we're, we're going out to the industry to seek the unvarnished truth. That's
0: fantastic. Well, John what's Dylan. your contribution towards that? So you what do you think? I,
1: I have helped write the book. I, I am the 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 co-writer of the book.
0: And Dylan is the guy who's they've sent in to talk sense to Jimmy Weller. That's really just like he did the same. <laughs> with Paul that's, what he, that's what he does, that's what he does. Absolutely. Made. I I'll talk <laughs> sense to pop stars, you know, but we, it, we should I'm end going. by asking you the, the your opinion of the greatest Paul Weller uh, song uh you think that he's written
1: actually aspects oh i don't know if i know that well listen to the record listen to true meanings the record yeah. that came out about three three or four years ago, oh, which
0: is the one you described as his masterpiece and then the yeah. I,
1: I honestly think it is and it sounds very toadyish, but it's a fantastic it's very record. john martin isn't it quite nick yeah. drake yeah yeah exactly
0: yeah, I don't know if I know that song specifically. Well, very but good. There, Cheer
1: yourself up, Mark, and go and listen to it. It'll make your day, I promise. There's yeah. your homework. There's your homework. I've, absolutely. <laughs> I,
0: I finally got to ask one question about the cover. I think it's very bold to put a picture of Steve Marriott on the cover.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're the second person to say that. The first person was me. They, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's. We will not be the whatever. last.
0: We will not be the last. <laughs> yeah, at all. yeah. Very good. <laughs> Absolutely uncanny resemblance. It is. It's it is this. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there it is. Paul Weller, Magic, A Journal of Song. We'll put a little uh, plug uh, to where you can order it at the bottom of this podcast. Fantastic to talk to you. Thanks very much,
1: Dylan. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. <laughs>